anyone ever, uh, heard, you ever heard the expression uh, that history has a way of repeating itself? Yes. Uh, Sidney J. Harris, uh, he, he uh, shared a quote uh, many years ago, and it just simply says this, history repeats itself, but in such cunning disguise that we never detect the resemblance until the damage is done. Uh, oftentimes, we look back over our lives and we see uh, different ways that we have repeated things that once were before us. And sometimes it happens uh, as a result of just passing down uh, generational things. Uh, in other ways, we see it just in our own life. And today, we're going to be kind of walking through what it looks like to go uh, through different seasons in our life. And some of us uh, have uh, done some things before that we oftentimes get to a place and we feel uh, like we're in, in a really good place and we feel comforted where we are, yet there are others of us that were like, man, I, I don't feel like I've ever gotten to a really good place. I feel like I'm just in the middle of a bunch of pain, and I feel like I either stay there or that if I ever seem to climb out, I fall right back into it. And uh, there are many different things that as we think through uh, that can be a challenge in our lives, but I pray that today that your hearts would be encouraged. And here's why. As because as we dive into this, this psalm, uh, Psalm 23, that David, uh, once the king of Israel, and before that was a, a Bedouin, shepherd, uh, he writes about our good heavenly father. And he makes a correlation between what a shepherd would do with his flock and what God does with his people, oftentimes referred to in scripture as sheep. Uh, stubborn sometimes, uh, mass mob instinct mentality, and sometimes we do some really foolish things. Anybody could admit that? Go ahead. Yep, that's me. Uh, and so what it is, is that we can drive uh, from the scripture and is this, is there's hope. There is hope for all of us. And I pray that today that you would see such hope. And so let's dive in to Psalm 23. We want to welcome those that are joining us online as well as the Edgewood campus in this moment. And we're going to dive in to Psalm 23. And it just simply says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. Amen? Yeah. Um, he restores my soul. And he leads me on paths of righteousness for his namesake. It's for his purpose that he leads us to such great places. Uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May we just ask the Lord to give us a clear understanding of this text today. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for those that are attentive today to what you have to say. Lord, whether it be here uh, on a physical location in Wills Point or in Edgewood or those that are joining us around the world, I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, most of all, that our the eyes of our heart, Ephesians 1, are open, that we are illumined to the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, that wherever we are in this season of our life, that you would meet us there. And that, Father, you would remind us what it looks like to be restored. Once on our backs, Lord, you desire to place us on our feet. You want to give us a new life in Christ, and you want to lead us to a place of peace, fulfillment, and everlasting life. Father, I pray that on the pursuit of such things that you would give us your joy, your contentment, and your desires. I pray, Father, that you would replace some of the foolish things that we set our mind and our heart's attention on. And Lord, help us to be about your business. I pray for all of us in this room today that, God, we would think about you and your church differently. And instead of coming and just attending a meeting, 
Lord, I pray we'd be about tending to your business. God, there are so many of us right now that we need to tend to the business at hand. And Lord, we need to remove um, some of the selfishness in our lives, and we need to bask in your glory, your presence, and your provision. And so, Lord, we ask for your wisdom and your strength and your hope in those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, uh, Cody uh, took us through uh, the scripture in Ephesians, or, uh, uh, Psalm 23, but verse 4. And in verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And one of the interesting things that he talked about is that, uh, in a sense, there is a, a, a part of the human life that continually repeats itself. Uh, just as history has a way of repeating itself, guess what? So do the patterns in which we live in relationship to God. And there are many times in which we will go through some troughs or some low valleys in order to meet the, God, meet the God of the universe. And here's what you and I need to realize and know, is that it is oftentimes in those dark places, the valley of the shadow of death, that we meet God the closest. It is there in which we even see in verse 4, and, and Cody noted last week something that you and I should lean into, and that is that in the Psalm 23, the language changes there. In verse 1, it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. In verse 2, uh, he goes, or, I'm sorry, in uh, verse 2, he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. In verse 1, he goes, He is my shepherd. I shall not want. But then the language changes, and you know where it changes in verse 4 is in the valley, in the troughs. In the ravine, in the dark places, it's no longer he, but it's now you. It's the one I'm close to. And it's oftentimes in the very difficult seasons of our life that we're like, you, Lord, are near. And aren't we just incredibly thankful for the provision of the Lord? We're thankful for his provision that even as he shared at the very beginning of the story with Joshua, he goes, Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord our God is with you wherever you go. Then he tells us uh, through the writer in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, Hey, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Why? For the Lord is with you. He'll never leave nor forsake you, are the words that the writer in Hebrews uses. The idea is this, is that regardless of where it is that we are walking, that the Lord is with us. And here's what you need to know. The Lord is with you in green pasture and still waters. He seems ever more present and near to us, though, in darkness. And then he leads us out of the troughs, and he desires to take us to new heights and new places. And that's where you get to verse 5. It's in a sense that he'll prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. And the idea of a table is something that a Bedouin shepherd would know that you and I oftentimes don't realize. But a Bedouin shepherd knew this, and here's what it is. is that in order for, for the spring months uh, to be successful, a shepherd would have to have adequate forage for his, his flock. And he would do that. It would be green pastures in which the dews are refreshing every day would also fulfill them. That they have not only good food and provision, but they have plenty to drink. That they are refreshed day in and day out. That God meets their everyday needs. Um, just as their shepherd does, God does the same for us. But then it says, and then it goes, and he goes, restores my soul. And, and so we know that the shepherd would oftentimes find his sheep cast, and it would be because they were looking for comfortable places or because they were getting entangled in things that they shouldn't be. And he would come and he'd place them back on their feet, and then he would send them on their way. Well, we see that and, and continue this pattern. But then what would happen is, is that a shepherd would realize that, this, that the spring grass has finally come to its end. 
that because of everything that they've nibbled away, they have ruined that pasture. They have to move somewhere else. And so as the summer approaches, the shepherd realizes that there is a place that's prepared. In a sense, it's the Alplands, or in a lot of times referred to as the Tablelands. And the Tablelands are up, up the ravine and, and then up on the mountain, and then it, it flattens out, and it's like a table. And up there, the Tablelands, this place is where a shepherd has to lead his flock to in the very dry seasonal months. But this is a place in which the shepherd has already gone, and with great provision, he has sought to care for it. He has made sure that he has already looked for signs of predators. He has gone and he has cared for that particular place. And there might have been some plants that are up on the table talk that would have been poisonous to that particular flock. And he goes, I, I got to go and prepare it. And so he would go, potentially even with his family, he'd begin to rip out plants that were going to be uh, a poison to his flock that would literally lay them over at one bite. And he would do is he would prepare this, this in a sense, table but in order to get to the table, guess what? you got to go through the valley, through the ravine, the dark places. And it is there that you come out of the trough, out of the ravine, out of the valley, and you begin to find the good things that your shepherd has prepared in advance for you. It's the idea that he has prepared a table before, for you in the presence of your enemies. And when you think about enemies here, a shepherd is, is talking about wolves and coyotes and cougars and any other prey that potentially would harm the flock. But here's what you need to know, is that it's not until that the shepherd takes them through such a, a very harsh valley and up to the tabletop do they understand and experience the goodness of their shepherd. In the dark places, they're really close to him. As they approach the tabletop, they are thankful for him, right? Because of all of his great provision. See, the challenge is, is that oftentimes it takes pain or misery or darkness in order for us to enjoy the promise. But here's what you need to know. In every single life, in multiple seasons of our life, because history has a way of re repeating itself, you and I will experience pain before you experience the promise. And here's what you need to lean into. Lean in with me. Pain always has a process before you get to the promise. There's always a process. And so you're going to sense that there are things that are around you that are difficult and there's going to be some painful things, some things that are circumstantial in your life, some things that you don't enjoy, that you're afflicted with, or that happen to you, or even some things that oftentimes an adversary or an enemy does to you. And in order for you to experience the goodness of God and to delight in His care, that even your enemies can't touch you, you have to go through a process in which the language in your life changes. He's not just a God out there, but He is your God. He's not just a shepherd. He's not just one who has a multitude of people around the world, but he is my shepherd. He's the one who meets my needs. You are the one who is with me. You are the one who never leaves me. You're the one who comforts me in my affliction. You're the one who meets all of my provisions. It is your staff that guides me. It is your rod that disciplines me. It is you that prepares a table for me. It is you that will not leave me in a valley all alone. It is our God, the one who is ever-present in our time of need, the one who will not allow us to be overcome by our fears, our insecurities, our anxieties, but that we could live in a peace that surpasses all understanding. He is our God. That's what he's talking about. He'll lead us to a table, a table of goodness 
even though we might be surrounded by our enemies. So the best way I can explain this to you is for you to understand this process. And this process is not one that's new to you. Um, it's not new to our own lives. You, you aren't the only one in this particular place and in this room that's the only one in pain. You may not be the only one in this room that right now is in the process of fulfilling God's promise. And there's some of you that you're right now, you're like, man, I just feel like I'm in the promised land. Like, this is my best life, and I'm living it right now. Listen, it won't be long before you're back in pain. And it won't be long before the Lord is using a process in your life to remind you of his goodness at the top of the table. And so regardless of where you are, what you need to know is that your life will repeat itself. Why? Because it always does. But it doesn't change anything about our good shepherd and his provision for you. Because it doesn't matter where the flock is, it matters that where the flock is, there is a good shepherd with you as well. And that's what we need to know about the Lord of hosts. So there was a people called Israel. Israel was born out of a, a, a guy uh, named Abraham. Abraham was uh, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. God goes to him in Genesis 11 and says, Hey, Abraham, I want to make you into a great nation. Genesis 12, he makes him a promise. He goes, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you name. I'm going to give you blessings. I'm going to give you descendants. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, he goes, I'm going to give you so many descendants you can't even count. It's going to be a, more than the stars in the sky, more than the sand on the seashore. And he goes, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. And people in the earth are going to be blessed by you. Every nation is going to be derived out of you. Those who come to me are going to come out of you. In a sense, he goes, everyone, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every language, black, white, brown, yellow, purple, blue, all of them, if they're going to experience the provision of God, is going to come through you, Abraham, and through your people. Abraham goes, okay, let's do this. And so he does. And so out of that, there is a nation that is born. The problem is, is not, not too young, long into the nation's history, um, they have a famine in the land. And so because of the famine in the land, they go and they seek refuge in a country towards the south. And listen, uh, there's about 80 of them, actually less than that. They're going to wander down to the south to a place called Egypt, and they're going to find the light and refuge in Egypt. Matter of fact, God's own people are actually there. There's a guy named Joseph sold by his brothers in slavery that's actually there. And there's a provision of God and he wants to lead them to a place where they're still going to have their needs met. The problem is, is that not too long after they find provision in Egypt, the Egyptians realize that, hey, not only do we have God's people here, but we can make them work for the food. Why give it to them when they could work for it? And they begin to oppress them. And they oppress them and oppress them and oppress them. And they do this for 400 years. Now, here's the challenge. They went in, and there was less than 80 of them. And when they're ready to come out after 400 years, guess what? There's approximately 2 million of them. See, they were in an incubator down in the south. And what they were doing is they were just multiplying and filling the earth. And they didn't realize it, because, but their God was with them. And he was preparing in their pain to take them through a process so that they would enjoy the promise. And here's what the promise was. I'm going to lead you out of this country to a promise, a land of fulfillment, a land flowing with milk and honey. If you will set your eyes on me, I'm going to destroy your enemies, your foes. I'll overcome all of them. And I'm going to prepare for you a table in the presence of your enemies. Wow, that sounds like a great plan, right? The problem is they need somebody to go and get the ball started. And so he goes to this guy named Moses. He goes, hey, Moses, I want you to be my guy. Moses goes, oh, do what? Huh? What? Yeah, no, I want you to be my guy. You're going to go. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell them to let my people go. And Moses goes, do, uh, do uh, what? Huh? What? What? 
He goes, well, I want you to go and I want you to speak. But I, I can't, I mean, I can't really, speak. I mean, I'm, I don't even know what to, I mean, I'm, I'm not even elo- eloquent enough to do that. He goes, I, I, don't, I don't need you to say anything. I, I'll, I'll say things on your behalf. You listen to me. No, no, I don't know about me. Why don't you get my brother Aaron to go? Which, by the way, is one of the greatest problems in the church today. Hey, God, why send me when you can send one, somebody else? Because he wants to send you so that you receive the blessing of the God of heaven and earth. Why in the world would you turn down God's blessing to give it to somebody else? Well, that's what Moses was about to do. Moses goes, no, okay, I'll go. And so Moses goes, and he goes to this guy named Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, the leader, the chief commander, and the people of Egypt. And he has the courage to say, okay, um, hey, uh, my God, the God of, uh, of Jacob, the God of, of Israel, the God uh, that says, I am who I am, said to let my people go. And Pharaoh laughs. Do what? And so there's a series of signs and wonders and plagues, and eventually all of those finally strike a chord with this guy in Egypt, this Pharaoh, the commander, and he lets the people go. They are led by Moses and, and a handful of others. They lead them across the Red Sea. Eventually, uh, they get out of the Red Sea. God overcomes the people of Egypt. And you see this incredible thing. They are in the process now. They're out of their pain, and they're heading to the promised land. And as they head to the promised land, they come to a place of, of a wilderness. And in this wilderness, they decide how long they're going to stay. And here's what you need to know. Lean in with me real quickly. You get to decide how long you'll be in the process. You don't get to decide your pain, and you don't really even get to decide the the purpose of the promise, but you have a choice in how long you'll be in the process. And so God says, I'm going to lead you to a place. And so he leads the people of Israel to a place, and then they knock on the door of the promised land. And so when they send out several several instructions, several different spies to the, the promised land, and they come back, and 10 of the spies report to Moses and the others. Go, oh, they're too big of the land. I mean, we're like grasshoppers before them. And then you've got Joshua and Caleb, the two guys who are like, who cares? God said that he's with us. He already told us that that land is ours. It's flowing with milk and honey. Why in the world would we not go? And Moses listens to the people that decide that in the midst of their process, they would be rather enjoying the pain of their past rather than delighting the promise of what God had for them. And so you know what they did? They made a really, really sheep-like decision. And they decided that they weren't going to be obedient to God. And so God leaves them in a place, the wilderness, meeting their needs and their provisions, although they grumble and complain against God. And you know what they chose? They chose to stay there 40-plus years. 40 years. When guess what? If they would have allowed God in the process to be who he wants to be, guess what? They would have experienced God much quicker and much faster, and they would have been in the promised land delighting in God's providence. See, the challenge is, is this story is one maybe you've heard. The challenge is, is that you've never seen it from the psalmist's perspective in Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, the psalmist writes, and I don't have the time to share it with all of you, the entire psalm, because it's rather lengthy, but I encourage you to go and check it out. But if you begin in verse 9, this is what's interesting. Uh, It begins to outline the very things that I've just shared with you. But I want you to see this interesting question that as they're in the process, they're in the middle of this wilderness journey, I want you to see one of the questions that the people of Israel ask. Because it's very important and relates to Psalm 23. So in verse 9, it says the Ephraimites, uh, the, the, 
Ephraimites were one of the tribes. So there's the tribe of Ephraim, which is the largest tribe in the people of Israel, which when it's mentioned, oftentimes in the Old Testament is referring to the nation as a whole. In this particular place, it seems to be referring to the nation as a whole. It says they were armed with bow, and then they turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but they refused to walk according to his law. Now, when it talks about the bow and turning back from the battle, there's no indication that the actual tribe of Ephraim ever turned down anything in battle. There's no so what it seems to be talking about is they didn't honor the Lord's commands. They didn't keep his law and his statutes, his decree. They were foolish in their desires. Kind of a reminder of Psalm 1. They walked in, in a spirit of, of wickedness and not wise counsel. And so because of that, their hearts seemed to be darkened. And they seemed to do what was right in their own eyes. And so they turned down, in essence, it seems to be a spiritual battle. They decided that they weren't going to trust God at his word. It's kind of the idea. Verse 11 says that they also forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he had performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zoan. That's Exodus 5 through 13, which I just shared with you. Like, so think about it. Here it is. They've just seen all these miraculous signs. They were freed from 400 years of bondage. God uses the Red Sea, parts it, allows them to walk through. It falls on the people of Egypt and it kills hundreds of thousands of them. And they are set free to the promised land. And as they walk through this process, they grumble and complain. Even after they saw the sea divided. And even after they saw the signs of the wonders. They stood, verse 13, it says the, divided, the, the sea was divided. That he let them pass through it and made waters to stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud. And at night, with a fiery light. That's Exodus 40. 36 through 38. He split rocks in the wilderness. He gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. So he even hit rocks and there was water that came from them. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. That's Numbers 20, verses 10 through 13. Isaiah 48 through 21. It says, yet they sinned against him more. Rebelling against the Most High God in the desert. Numbers 11. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. So in the wilderness, they were provided manna every single day, which was bread from heaven. It was a provision of God. They could walk outside their tents. They could gather enough manna for the day, and they could eat it and enjoy it. They didn't have to work. They didn't have to labor at it. Even on the Sabbath days, God gave them an extra abundance of it, so they didn't have to work in the evening to get any more. The idea was that God was providing. Here's what God does in the process. Ready? In the process, God is simply wanting you to learn to trust him. And he'll allow you to decide for yourself how long you'll be in the process until your stubborn, hard-hearted self, including mine, will decide before how long we're going to trust him. He'll leave you there for, for three months, for three years, for 30 years, or he'll leave you there for 300 if it takes it. All he wants is to, to allow you to walk through the pain so you understand that there's a promise at the end. But in order for you to experience the goodness, the, the divine hope, taste to see the Lord is good, you have to go through a process. You can decide how long you're in it. And so here it is. They're in the process. God's provision has been for them. And then they say this thing, verse 19. And then they spoke against God saying, God, can God spread a table in the wilderness? It is if they're in the season. And they go, God, where are you? God, can, can you give us a table? And 
Verse 20, he struck the rocks so the water gushed out of the streams overflowed. He, he could also give bread or provide meat for his people. Yes, he could. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they had not believed in God and they did not trust his saving power. So here's what I want you to understand. Is listen, what they did was this. God, your manna stinks. I'm tired of eating bread. I'm tired of eating wafers. Why don't you send something good? Can you not prepare a table for us? God, are you not big enough? Are you, can, are, you not, are you not swell enough? Are you not grand enough? Like you can't give us something to eat like meat? I mean, what about an onion? Radish? Something other than this stale bread. God, where is my table if you're so good? He goes, I'll send you, some, I'll send you something. I think you asked the, the, the wrong question. It's not, God, can you? But maybe you should have made a statement, God, we know you can. And I think that right there alone is a question in which oftentimes we, God, can you do this? No, it's not a matter of God can. He absolutely can. The question is, is should he? God, can you? And so God said, he sends a, a, a boatload of quail. And guess what? Here, here's what happens is they get quail. It, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands and thousands pass through, through the way. It lands right before them. They take and eat all they want. And guess what? The ones who taste the delicacy of meat actually lay over dead. And God says, you wouldn't trust me. You wanted something that wasn't my provision for you. Your foolish, stubborn hearts have led you to a place of arrogance. And guess what? I'll lay you over, and I will provide a new people. And so he raises up another generation, and he leaves them in the wilderness for 40 years to grow up, to trust him enough to take them to the promised land. You get to choose the process. Now, here's what the Lord is trying to teach us. He'll prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Here, here's what he's trying to teach you. Ready? He's trying to teach you that your shepherd is exceedingly good. You may not have everything you think you should have, but he will give you everything you need. It is the idea in verse 1 that you will lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Listen, in the process, you need to know that the Lord is good. He spreads a table before you in spite of of harsh circumstances. Yes, right now what you're going through potentially is awful. And to you particularly, it's painful and it hurts and it stinks. And I know that you wish that you were on the other side. But get this, you're not yet. So in the process, trust that God is still faithful. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does scripture tell us? Christ has died for you. It may hurt, it may be painful, and the process is not what you would draw up. But listen, even in the process, God is teaching us. He is with us. You shall not fear. He is our refuge and our strength. He is our strong tower. He is our God. He is faithful. He loves you. You need to know that in the process, as you go to the table, the Lord is already ahead of you. He is already knowing every deceitful scheme of the enemy, every crafty and cunning uh, trick that the adversary has done. He already knows that. He's already actually paid for that. And so you need to know that as, as your Lord leads you through these hard processes, that he already knows what's on the other side. And he's already conquered that. He's already paid for that. He's already purchased and redeemed that. 
So what you need to know is that God is moving ahead of you. It is very similar to what we just saw uh, that he, in a sense, just in the daytime, he provided a, a pillar or a cloud and a pillar of fire at night. He's doing the same thing for us, but he does it with the promised Holy Spirit. He is with us. You need to know that um, what happens oftentimes for us, you ready for this? The challenge for us is that in the process, as you're walking through the valley of shadow of death and you're about to approach the table talk to go up to a place where there's fulfillment and promise, it is then that oftentimes, though we know the language is that you are my shepherd, it is then that oftentimes we bail. Our pain and our process is oftentimes where we choose to do what's right in our own eyes. It's then that sometimes a lot of us decide that instead of walking where our faithful shepherd leads, that we're going to do what feels right in our own eyes. And it's then that we go AWOL. It is then that in the pain, it's when we decide that we're going to get something else to numb it. It is oftentimes that as we're walking through that valley or that ravine and we're in the process, it's then that we decide that what God's providing for us is not enough. And so we beg for quail and we ask foolish questions. God, can you not prepare the table for me? All too often, sheep, because history has a way of repeating itself, bail on the good shepherd when it gets hard. Which is a classic example of what differentiates sheep from goats in the New Testament. Sheep, they hear their shepherd's voice and they follow him. Goats look like they follow the shepherd, and yet they don't know his voice, and they don't follow him. And oftentimes, you'll know who is which in the process. And then the last thing is I just think through this whole idea is this, is that you need to know that what really is demonstrated here in this particular verse, the Lord prepares the table for me in the presence of my enemies. What it's really talking about is not the feel-good things that you might be thinking in your mind right now. So you might be going, oh yeah, I'm really in a painful place and oh, I'm so thankful the Lord's leading me to prop. Do you know what the promise is? The table is the eternal life in which Jesus Christ gives you. It is not the freedom from your pain in this life next month. So if you're thinking in your mind, oh yeah, I'm in a really difficult spot in my marriage and I know that if I just stay the course in the process that I'm going to have abundant peace over here. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, is that this life is hard. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. Paul says, I know what it's like to be chased by my own men. I know what it's like to be well-fed and hungry. I know what it's like to be naked. I know what it's like to be clothed. I know what it's like to have plenty. I know an abundance of hardship. I have been chased by my own bandits, countrymen. I get it. But he goes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because I know that even though somebody might take this mortal flesh, this body of mine, I know that the Lord has overcome. That in the valley of the shadow of death, he drank the cup of wrath so that I might have eternal life. Reminds you of the words of Jesus. Oh God, may there be any other way. Could this cup pass from me? But God, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus succumbs to death. He drinks the wrath so that we in this life will not be overcome. There is hope. That while this life is hard and it is painful and it is a continual process of trusting and growing in God, we need to know that there is one day where we will be fully satisfied because our shepherd is good.
So how do we, how do we even get there? He goes, well, you do it when you know that your head is anointed with oil. See, the thing is, is the tabletop is awesome, right? When you get the sheep up, they're out of the valley, they're on the tabletop. But the problem is, is that that happens in the summer months. In the summer months, it also gets hot and dry. And when you get hot and dry, you know what also you get? Flies. You ever been to a family reunion? Hot summer, it's like 102 degrees. You got a bunch of family you don't know. And, and then everybody's trying to get you eat food that's covered in flies. And you're like, there's just a lot of things about this scenario I don't like. Family I don't know, an uncle I can't stand, and flies on everything, including that piece of fried chicken I want. <laughs> flies, pestilence happen in the heat. It rises. If you anoint my head with oil, what is that? For, for shepherds that would lead their flock up to the tabletops, the cliffs, to flat lands, the alplands, oftentimes they would take a concoction that they've made and it would be oil, that when they saw that pestilence was driving their sheep batty, that in a sense, they could see their heads being scratched on trees or slamming their heads against things that would give them comfort, they would take oil and they would place it on their heads. And it would be a way to bring peace in the midst of all the challenges. You anoint my head with oil. The idea was that all of the things that were, in a sense, being a nuisance, brought now a calm peace. It's the idea that they had all their needs met. It just reminds you of all the previous verses. He makes me lie down. You can't lie down with pestilence. He leads me to green water. You can't do that if you're always annoyed. It's the idea that he restores me. He, in a sense, is reminding me that he's near. Even in the valley, even on the tabletop, everywhere, he's with me. And he will not let me be disturbed. That's the idea. He anoints me with oil. Now listen, he's done the same thing for us, and it's in the promised Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, Paul writes this way, um, just in this sense, on Ephesians 5, 17 through 18. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know what the will, will of the Lord is? Here it is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. A better way for him to say it is be sober-minded and alert. Be filled with the Spirit. The Lord has anointed our life with oil. Oil in the scriptures reminds us of the promised Holy Spirit in which he has filled us with. Galatians 5.16 says it this way, but I say walk by the Spirit that you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Why do we have the, the oil of God in our life? Why is the Spirit in our life? It's so that we don't get tripped up by the annoyance and the pestilence of this life, that we can keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12. Is so that we don't walk in a manner that's not worthy of the gospel. Ephesians 4. It's that we keep our eyes on him, the prize, the chief shepherd, whether we're in the pain or the process or we're looking forward to the promise. The idea is be near to the Lord because he is our shepherd. He anoints us with oil and get this, and my cup overflows. My cup overflows. And the idea of our cup overflowing is this, is contentment. You will never, ever, ever exude the goodness, the kindness, the benevolence of God if you're not content in your shepherd. And the, listen, I'm going to end with this. If you see somebody that claims to know Jesus and yet not love one another, they seem annoyed all the time, they seem grumpy all the time, they just seem to have no life or no joy. It is a classic sign that they have not been filled with the Spirit because those filled with the Spirit overflow the Spirit. 
you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. The idea of my cup overflows reminds me of a scripture I memorized 20 plus years ago. And it just simply says this, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. So then, just as I received Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up, strengthen the faith as you've been taught, overflowing with thankfulness. In the ESV, not the way I memorized it, it says abounding in thankfulness. The idea of that Greek word is this, is that your cup has been filled and now it's overflowing. In essence, what God has done is he has been our shepherd in our pain throughout the process. He's leading us to a promised land in which nothing can deceive. You and I can have peace in the middle of all because the Lord is with us. How do we know that? Because he's anointed our head with oil. He's filled us with our spirit and with his spirit. And guess what? People see it because it's flowing out of us. That is the good God we serve. And that is why we here in this local body make such a big deal about why we think not only membership matters, but why our members ought to be about the business of tending to God's business. And I think you may have heard me say this in recent weeks, and I want to close with it because I want you to, to ever have it impressed on your heart and mind. God's word has never been about knowledge. It's always been about changing lives. God's word changes people. And when we live by God's word, we look like his people. And what we have to be thinking about as his people in the local body, the expression of God's goodness apart in the world, set apart for him, for his glory, we have to be thinking about, am I attending a church? Am I just sitting in a seat? Am I just taking up a space? Or am I being about the business of my good shepherd. Is my cup overflowing? Who am I impacting? Who is changed as a result of my direct relationship with my good shepherd? Because you know what you do is you bring people to your good shepherd and you say, let me have you meet him because he's changed my life. He has anointed my head with oil. There is no pestilence in my life. I, I have pain all around me. I have chaos all around me. Yet there is no confusion in me. There is order. There is complete peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And listen, it's not because I finally figured out a way to order my task manager list. It's not because I finally quit drinking alcohol. It's because I finally met the one who fulfills my every need and has filled me in a way that it overflows. And he prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil and my cup overflows. Next week, we're going to talk about the goodness of God. And I really believe it's going to blow your mind. Because he is so good. And he is so faithful. And he is so worthy of our worship. So let's pray. And we're going to continue to sing to the God who allows us to have our hearts in, in tune with him. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for your provision, for your goodness. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that in order for us to experience the fulfillment, the, the continual satisfaction of our shepherd, it means that we have to be content. And as long as we're discontent, unsatisfied, and continually searching for other things to lead us, we will never find you. The Lord is oftentimes in the pain it's oftentimes in the dark valleys and the ravines that we meet you. And 
somehow you go from being a shepherd to being our shepherd. And Lord, I pray that regardless of how we come to meet you in this room, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see life in a different way because your spirit leads us to all truth. God, you are the oil of refreshment for our soul. You are the one who allows us to have real joy, to be renewed in you daily, that your mercies are new. As Lamentations 3 tells us that you, God, every morning remind us of your faithfulness, that you are our portion and that we should hope in you. God, when the sun comes up in the morning, I pray that we would rejoice in your mercies and your provision. I pray that we would delight to eat of your word, to drink of the good portion in which you give us. And I pray that we would live in our day tomorrow with our cup overflowing. I pray that I would be an expression tomorrow, wherever I go, of the goodness and the benevolence and the kindness of God. And I pray that people would be able to look at me, whether in my attitude whether I treat my wife or my children, and they would see that there is something marked differently about this man because of what you've done in me. So guard me, protect me, guide me to all truth. In Jesus' name, amen.